A written transcript of this episode is provided by Starburst. For more information, you can see the show notes. Welcome to Data Mesh Radio with your host, Scott Hurlman, sponsored by Starburst. This is Adrian Estala, VP and Field CDO at Starburst and host of Data Mesh TV. Starburst is the leading contributor to Trino, the open source project, and the Data Mesh for Dummies book that I co-wrote with Colleen Tarto and Andy Mott. To claim your free book, head over to starburst.io. Data Mesh Radio is provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It is produced and hosted by me, Scott Hurlman. I started this podcast as a place for practitioners to get useful information about Data Mesh, and we're at over 200 episodes. I've now left Data Stacks, you know, thanks for all their help in founding things, but I've left to start Data Mesh Understanding, which is also helping practitioners to get to the information needed to do Data Mesh well. We have free implementer introduction and roundtable programs, in addition to the more advanced yet affordable offerings. So please do get in touch if you're looking for more information on how to do, how to approach Data Mesh. Just check datameshunderstanding.com for more info. There's also a helpful organization of past Data Mesh radio episodes there if you want to dig into specific topics rather than digging through 200 different episodes. So with that, let's hit the funky intro music and listen to what you'll hear about in this interview episode. Bottom line up front, what are you going to hear about and learn about in this episode? I interviewed Alex Bross, VP of Data Engineering at Fifth Third Bank. To be clear, though, Alex was only representing his own views on the episode. We talked in general about kind of the data literacy upskilling and kind of their journey thus far and, and uh, what he's learned. So here are some key takeaways or thoughts from Alex's point of view. Number one, start from empathy. Being able to empathize with someone will give you a far better chance of understanding their context. And analytics is really about understanding what the data shows with the applicable context. Number two, there are three main barriers to change, logic, credibility, and emotion. Don't try to skip any of them. Number three, microservices can teach us a lot about how to distribute data, especially from the people angle. When moving from the monolith and single branch development to API-driven microservices, how did people feel? How did we get them to the right place mentally and capability-wise? We should learn from that and leverage it for a similar journey with Data Mesh. Number four, don't try to do all your disruption at once. And Data Mesh is a disruption to the status quo. The business has a cadence. Look to fit to that as best as possible. Number five, when looking where to begin with something like Data Mesh, look at need and or desire. Is there a team that is really struggling and, and needs some change to really make some positive momentum? Or is there a team that's just very willing to try it out? Number six, it's very difficult to have positive change with a team that is already struggling. If you're going to work with them now, make sure to be there to help instead of demand change. 
Number seven, catalysts lower the amount of energy needed in a chemical equation. That's what the definition of catalyst is. So be a catalyst for change. Make it less difficult. Make it so that they don't have to put in as much energy to, to make a positive change. Focus thought that and many or most domains will welcome you with open arms. Number eight, business users are, by and large, much more digital and data literate than historically. With a moderate amount of upskilling, they'll be able to leverage low-code, no-code platforms for scalable and repeatable data consumption. You know, Mac has been um, skeptical of of low-code, no-code, but that's more on the data production side. I don't know what her opinion is on the the consumption side, and I don't really have a view on it just yet. Number nine, if your data consumers can see the uh, the value data literacy can unlock for themselves, you know, and their careers, and their domains, they will likely be hungry for training. Number ten, failure doesn't have to mean disaster in data anymore. This is a concept that comes up in a lot of episodes. With fast feedback loops, you can quickly adjust. Make sure people understand that. Perfect is the enemy of good or done, right? Don't go for perfect. Just (laughs) get something out, get the feedback, improve it, improve it, and keep doing that. Number 11, if you do a boot camp, look for practical applications over theoretical. How can someone take this and apply it to their job, to their domain today? Actually doing something now while training makes it more tangible and, and more likely to stick. Number 12, that practical work can have a positive impact now. Set milestones for trainees around real contributions to real use cases as they learn and gain the skills and confidence to contribute back. You know, you don't want to say this is this massive thing and you're expected to do, you know, these, (laughs) you're expected to be a data engineer by the end of a five-week training when you haven't had any data engineering training before. But they can really make a lot of, of progress and value while they're doing this. And, and that makes them more likely to want to work with data as well going forward. Number 13, from Alan Hob- Holub's uh, Death of Agile presentation, training a team for two weeks slows them down for two weeks. Not training a team slows them down forever, right? So think about how you want to actually leverage that. You know, you can't just do nothing but training, but at the same point, you've got to upskill your people and you can't just go out and try and buy the talent externally. Number 14, starting change discussions around handing over data ownership is a big potential friction point. If you can give people the capability to own their data and the desire to learn and use their new capabilities, the ownership conversation, that transfer to them becomes far easier because they're already thinking about what they could do and and they're far more comfortable rather than this kind of nebulous, you now own the data. Number 15, it's easy to fall into the trap of trying to level up data literacy by hiring, by going external. If you want to upskill your people instead, Look to the incentives of who might approve a data literacy program and align as best as you can to those those incentives. Finally, number 16, if you want to get a data boot camp approved, write a business case for it. People invest in what makes business sense. Make your data boot camp make more business sense. Okay, enough of just me. Let's hear from our awesome guest in this interview episode. 
Okay. Very, very excited for today's episode. I've got Alex Bross here, who is the VP of Data Engineering at Fifth Third Bank. To be clear, though, he is only here representing his own views, but uh, we're going to be talking a lot about kind of how do you actually get <laughs> to where your team can do something like data mesh, right? And so like the data literacy and upskilling that we need and we're, we're going to be talking about a lot of different aspects here. I think Alex's uh, view on this is, is a very, very high empathy view, which I think is really important to doing data mesh right, especially when you think about a lot of people want to go from a one to a, or from a zero to a one when it comes to, are we doing data mesh? Or are we not right? Versus this is a transition state. And so I think like, how do we, how do we work with our people to get where we need to go? How do we think about that? Um, you know, it's not really feasible to go out and uh, hire an army of people. So we're going to dig into a lot of the things that he's seen through, through fifth Third's um, journey thus far, and just kind of how do we get where we want to go? And like, how do we think about working with people? So they're bought into the change instead of, um, you know, the scared, the, the kind of pushback and pain that change usually causes. And then, we're going to talk about why you kind of want to go and find the business people and teach them data rather than trying to teach the data people all of the business, right? Data people obviously can learn aspects of the business, but we have this thing of trying to teach the data people to now understand the entirety of all of the domains and the complexity of that and how that, that causes challenges. So with that as the backdrop, Alex, if you don't mind, uh, if you could give people a bit of an introduction to yourself, and then we can jump into the conversation at hand. Yeah, for sure. Thank you for that, Scott. I appreciate that. Um, so yeah, so I've been at the bank, uh, Fifth Third Bank, for about three years. I joined in April of 2019. Um, I am the Vice President of Data Engineering, although most of my career, interestingly, has been focused around software development. So only probably like the past five years, I would say have been pretty centrally located or focused on uh, data and analytics of some kind or another. Um, I work with an amazing team of people at Fifth Third. You've probably seen maybe a few of us kind of hit the hit the streets recently with our work around data mesh. And so if, you, um, if Fifth Third rings a bell, that's probably why. I have three amazing kids. I have a beautiful wife that's incredibly patient with me and our kids. Uh, I'm an avid World of Warcraft player, so you can ask me about that too if you want. We can get into that maybe. That would be interesting. Uh, and I have tons of experience in Agile, Lean Six Sigma, data, software, um, people leadership is probably my my passion, and the industries I've been in are, are largely banking and insurance. It's it's funny because I think the World of Warcraft thing is it, it teaches you how to uh, build a team and to manage uh, people's uh, roles relative to a single raid versus the overall guild and all that fun stuff. I, I, I stayed away from WoW because I knew I would get uh, a little too hooked on it. But uh, yeah, I think yeah. I think it, it ends up playing well into that people management side. Yeah, um, for sure. Yeah. So, uh, so let, let's start with what have you seen when thinking about your transition into data mesh, right? When we think about the people and the upskilling, it, it seems like, okay, now does everybody have to become, you know, I, I kind of hate the citizen data scientist uh, concept because we're trying to make everybody do everything and it's just adding a lot of cognitive load. So like when you started to look at what you would need to do this, was it that you were looking at, 
okay, let's go domain by domain. Let's kind of have build a broad base layer. Like what, what have you found? What, like maybe what approach did you take? And if you were to go back and, and give yourself some advice, <laughs> what, what did you learn from that? What, what might you do differently as well? Yeah, yeah. That would be an amazing superpower. If I could go back and give myself advice, I would use that all the time, probably. Uh, I would say probably the biggest piece of empirical evidence I leveraged was, um, and, I, and I love the way that you described this at the outro, which was uh, to be be uh, being kind of empathy focused or empathy leaning when it comes to these kinds of change. Uh, because I, I tend to think that empathy will unlock or your ability to understand people's context and where they're at and their own change curve will unlock all kinds of different avenues that might help accelerate that in the future. Um, but this paradigm shift in data is not unlike a software paradigm shift that took place when microservice architecture was introduced and we went from large monolith, like, you know, um, single branch sort of development um, into much smaller API driven microservices, architecture and distributed software engineering. And so I kind of just look at, well, what was that like for people? Like, how did we how did we kind of crest that change curve and what were kinds of the, the patterns and themes that were emerging at that time? And can we apply any of those to the context of data? And so. Uh, one of the first things that jumped out to me because I happened to be like near the ground zero, I guess, or, or epicenter of when um, DevOps was becoming a thing, probably, I don't know, this was maybe like 2012, 2013, when it started to hit the conference circuit. And um, a lot of what I saw was just like a, a huge focus on employee upskilling and training. And it was at the time, all the analysis was happening around like, well, what does it take to just outright buy a DevOps tool chain and, a, and an entire sort of function to go with it through, you know, a big consulting firm or something like that, where they can just kind of bring the whole concept in and then, you know, balancing that with like, well, you have a workforce today that is skilled in lots of different ways um, and is expecting a certain amount of disruption and change to their own context. And so how do you take advantage of that um, in the face of really large kinds of change like we're talking about? Yeah, I think that's very, very, I mean, you know, uh, anybody who's watched a lot of Jamak's uh, presentations, she's talked about, you know, I, I love it when somebody says, oh, uh, data mesh feel like as if it were this massive reveal of data mesh is a lot like microservices versus like, yes, that that's where she said she's gotten it because yeah. that's what worked in software. So exactly. But we need to we need to go and talk to people like yourself that have both of those perspectives because this is a big change. And, you know, when when you went to microservices, uh, you know, kind of a leading question, but did you go in and or would you recommend to go in and smash the monolith with a big sledgehammer so it just goes out and just shards? Or do you look at that kind of thin slicing model? And and kind of how do you think about that stage two as well of, of microservices? Yeah. And, and what does that mean for the people where, you know, you started with, okay, we've got a couple of leading domains and then all of a sudden we're going wider. Like, how do you manage that? Or what, what did you learn from, from working through that as to what's a good way and what's a bad way from the people side to get them prepared for this change and to work with them through this change. So you're not having to thin slice for eternity, right? You're not, you're not thin slicing out a new service every three weeks and you're getting to a thousand services. So that's 3000 weeks. That's 60 years, right? If my math holds, <laughs> like, how do you think about the, those two different uh, diametrically opposed of don't rush too much, but also we have to get there. Yeah. Yeah. You got it. Um, yeah. So there's definitely like wanting to feel that urgency of change because that will, that will like usually prompt your, you to go take an action, go somewhere, go in a direction that's oriented toward achieving that goal. 
Um, and so you got to find, you have to be really, I think, oh man, this is a tough question. I, there's a world I want to live in, which is the juggernaut, like swing the sledgehammer at everything, disrupt everything, break it apart until it makes sense. And then there's the reality of, um, you know, working in an industry that's very quarterly focused or year end focused. And so we have uh, products that need to have some kind of amalgamation of change that they incur. And, and those are facing lots of disruption and transformations in and of their own accord. So I guess my answer, my simple answer is just go where there's a burning need, which is a, a really easy answer to say of like, oh, where there's a, a group that if you have a claims function or you have a retail function or you have a whatever function and they're being the most disrupted because of some digitization that's taking place in the industry, that's like a likely place to go. Conversely, um, if you have a place that doesn't necessarily have a business need to change, but they have a willing audience of people that want to change. Like I also like to explore those those areas equally. Um, and to me, the, the whole point of that is to get to as quickly as you can that validated learning. Let's, let's try something with data mesh that gets us some actual feedback and experience. Um, of going down this path. Uh, and I think that there's a really common, I, I use this story all the time. So for anyone that, that knows me that's listening to this, this will probably be just throw it for you by this point. But uh, I used to work at a company that had this sort of innovation showcase every year. And Fifth Third does this as well too, but this was just at a different company. Um, and this was at the time where Oculus Rift was like a, a new device. Uh, like VR was starting to become a thing that wasn't just from Virtual Boy back in the 80s, but it was like a, it was a thing that was coming back now, right? Yeah. And so we, uh, so we had an Oculus that was in this sort of avenue that connected all the buildings and you can go here and, and experiment with it. And at the time it was like, put it on, and you, it's a little bit disorienting. The tech wasn't quite there. You could sort of see the, the refresh rate happening. And, and the, the, it was rudimentary at the time, right? It was an early, early, early adoption, early phase of it. The next year they brought it back, there was a full immersion um, haptic feedback like lab that you could go in and you could experience it. And the difference in people being able to understand the, what, what virtual reality was actually like and be immersed in that and being able to see and interact with it prompted so much more change or so much more interest in that thing. And so I just apply that to anything where we're trying to encourage or adopt a lot of change, potentially with urgency or, or, or haste. Uh, but how quickly can we get to something that people can actually see and interact with? And I think there's so much power in being able to do that um, in terms of that power being harnessed back into getting more people to adopt, getting more interest, getting more you know, um, engagement in that idea. So uh, the long answer is, was that the short answer is go to where there's a need um, go to where you have a, a burning platform or a, a part of your business that is absolutely facing disruption or to where people just are willing and wanting to change. Like there's a lot of value to be had in those areas. So the, the second is probably a little easier from a change management perspective, but let's let's talk about the first of where there is maybe not as as much of a desire from that that standpoint to change, but there is that need. Like I think the the one that that most people in data mesh are, really trying to do is we need your data and it's like, but it's not helpful necessarily to the domain. And let's not talk about that because I think that is the, the thing where you're, you're not finding the right incentives for that person. So let's not, let's not jump there just yet. <laughs> let's not go. Can you solve the, uh, Alex, please solve for everybody, the incentivization yeah. problem of anything related to work ever. Right. Like, but when there is that burning need, is it about showing them that they're that, I mean, have they typically known that or are they typically afraid when you're looking at something like data mesh? Are they like, well, am I automating myself out of a job? Like hmm. what, what have you found? Is it a fear reaction? Is it a, um, a, a thank you? You're coming in, you see us, you see that we need some help. Like what, what is that? Or is it just kind of all over the map? 
Yeah, yeah. No, you got it. I mean, you, you hit all the things there. So I think there's so many forces at play when it's like what's blocking people from potentially changing. I think when you look at those burning platform areas, too, um, they're burning for a reason. So there's usually not a lot of opportunity to be like, hey, I know you guys are underwater, but then like here's another anchor of change that you need to go incorporate into your value stream and figure out how to optimize what you're already not doing well or what's already kind of on fire in your in your purview. And so the wrong way to do it is probably the easier answer first is to like just go and try to like manifest a bunch of change in an area that's already overburdened. Um, I think the the way that I've seen it generally work well is, like I said, if I go all the way back to the beginning when you started to talk about empathy, is exactly to your point, demonstrate that like, hey, we're here to help and support. And it's really scary. And, and adopting change can like feel all kinds of different ways. I make people cross their arms the other way. And I'm like, that's kind of what like physical change feels like. It's like awkward. You can do it, but it feels weird. And, it, and you want to go do the other thing you were doing before. And so getting people to look at whatever change uh, we're talking about in this context, data mesh. So we're talking about all aspects of the data supply chain. And generally speaking, we're invoking the most change on either um, those data producers at the source system side or the data consumers um, at the downstream reporting side or the analytics side where they're trying to incorporate new new, new kinds of data into their work stream. And um, for that group, for those groups, you really want to kind of anchor to like, hey, this is going to be a catalyst for you. And what a catalyst doesn't do is put a bunch of energy into a solution. It takes energy out. And so we want to try to find a way to make um, what we're experimenting with in data mesh easier than what it is you're doing today. Um, and, and so like there's these when you look at the actual data behind the data mesh strategy and when you look at the amount of time people spend trying to find data and make use out of it, and then you look at the bottleneck that we create through data centralization of an enterprise shared service, it, it doesn't make sense, logical sense that both of those things would be increasing over time. Like if we're getting a bottleneck of data centralization, we should be making it easier on the downstream side or the consumer side. And what we're seeing is the opposite. Like we're still kind of not able to make signal out of noise on that end as, as well. And so when you have two of those things that are to your point, diametrically opposed and increasing at the same time, you want to try to find ways that you can make whatever the current context is easier. And that happens through support. It definitely happens through validating uh, you know, what those folks are doing, even from the change management side. It's very scary to look at uh, some kind of optimization play that makes it feel like, well, what I'm doing today may not be relevant tomorrow. And so for sure, airing all of that stuff out, like that's where I do think you need to take the sledgehammer to. You can't dance around the, the element of organizational change management. I think you have to go full force at like, like it, it might be tough at the beginning, like it's going to feel like you're giving things up. And that sense of loss is really strong for people, even in the context of work. Um, and so being empathetic to that, being supportive, not just dropping in a strategy PowerPoint and then never revisiting it and, and leaving people up to their own devices is definitely not the way to do that. And so I, I'm always in favor of the the coach or the pod going in and, and talking to working with the team in their context and understanding what it is, building credibility, addressing the emotional constraints and sort of invoking change that way. Um, which certainly is probably not the fastest way to do it, I would argue, but probably in the long term is is definitely the the better way, the better approach. It, it's kind of like um, building a shoddy foundation, right? You can go mm -hmm. in and you can you can do that foundation very very quickly, and you know what? If if the if this is going to be a temporary thing that only needs to stand for you know the next few months, it's a it's a grain silo that you're going to knock down and you, you know whatever. Okay, that's not a big deal, but like you know, if it's only for temporary storage, but if you need this thing, you know, there are crane silos that are, you know, a hundred plus years old or whatever, yeah. you need to build the right foundation. So I think a lot of what you're talking about though, becomes a concern for people when they hit stage two, when they go wide, you're still doing one-on-one -on -one conversations. Do you think that that's still the case? You know, what, what, 
a lot of people are saying is that it is. Some people are saying, well, then we can't ever scale enough to get past, you know, what we talked about, the the thin slicing. Is it that you just kind of have to have a bigger concept of a domain? You're not going two pizza team by two pizza team domain and that you're kind of going in or or like how how are you if if you haven't hit there, like how are you planning on it or or what what are your thoughts there? Yeah, that's a great question. No, you're, you're spot on. I think that like uh, I we try to act as multipliers. So, the, you know, in terms of, you know, my current scope at Fifth Third, like we try to act as multipliers. So we know, yes, the high speed direct communication one on one is the most powerful form of communication, but the least scalable. So especially when you look at that just requires exceptional people doing exceptional work. And that's just a finite resource, generally speaking. And so um, what we try to do is look at this is the really exciting thing to me about data mesh finally where i feel like the the uh, data technology is really kind of keeping pace finally or catching up to um, where the you know its software brethren has been for the last couple decades in terms of uh, we have a, a group of consumers if you think about um, the data supply chain again for a second that are going to be consuming analytics somewhere downstream and those users are much more capable. I'm thinking. I'm speaking of business uh, users now, like people in lines of business that are consuming data. They're they're much more capable of using software than than any cohort has ever been in the past. Like you know, everyone has a smartphone. Everyone generally knows what software as a service is. Everyone knows how to operate and configure things for the most part. And we're not really taking advantage of that. We're still you know largely holding up the industry of financial services on the backs of Microsoft Excel. And so we have to find a way to sort of increment ourselves away from that. Um, and really start to introduce things to people or, or platforms to people that start to feel a lot more like things they're already used to. Um, so we're finding a, t- a ton of value in looking at platforms and introducing platforms that are low code, no code as much as they can be. But even if they are, um, even if they do require some uh, experience in development or even language or query language in general, like we're finding that that's not that big of a barrier to crest. Like for the most part, we can get people there um, with training. And I think that's the differentiator is that, you know, you really do need to look at how can you pivot some of these um, change efforts that we're, we're talking about now into very direct investment of upskilling, uh, you know, of, of individuals in those target domains? Well, and, and I think what, like, Jamak has talked a little bit about how she's afraid of low code, no code, but that's on the data production side, right? Mm. Exactly what you just mentioned is on the consumption side, right? Where if it's it because low code, no code, it scales until it doesn't. It's it's often a black box. It's often that thing. So when you have a real scale need, which you do on a lot of times on the production side, especially when something becomes um, valuable, it, <laughs> that that as as you really start to hit that knee in the curve, you know, or whatever, that as soon as it starts to value, then your unit economics start to collapse or it can't scale or things like that. But exactly what you were saying there is that part of what we need to do, I think there's the, the what do we owe each other? And, and what do we owe each other? We owe, The producers owe it to work with the consumers to get them to a place where they can actually leverage their data. And then the consumers are actually owe it to the producers to pay them off in some respects, right? Mm. That can be that the greater business that people get rewarded for that, or that it can be, hey, we're going to make sure that we circle back information with you. Or, you know, in in a lot of financial institutions, it's literally paying, like it's literally domains paying financial uh, incentives from one to the other. But Mm -hmm. um, one question, let's split 
the upscaling conversation into producers and and consumers which which do you think is is more difficult and where have you been focusing on right like mm-hmm. we're lowering the bar if we're making it so that we can use data more we either have to well it's not either it's and basically but lower the bar to leveraging data for the consumers and we have to raise what we're actually sharing with people yep. right so where where have you found is the low hanging fruit there so people yeah. might want to start there and that they might want to start a gradual change on the other aspect or what what have you found when working with people on that yeah great question um so i a couple of different things i think a big barrier for people is just trusting the data that they're being presented with like and so how do i know when that was relevant or uh, you know i'm not totally familiar with the nomenclature that we're using or or schema structure or anything like that and so a lot of it is just getting better validity into the into the data, which is establishing data quality rules, leveraging all of our data management practice and, and capabilities, and quite frankly, um, building out a really robust data catalog. I think that that is a, a really big unlocker for an enterprise um, of any scale, really. But if you're trying to get people to trust data, you should put more information and context around the data in and of itself. So leveraging some kind of catalog idea is, is huge. Um, to your question about producer versus consumer, um, one of the things that, um, at least again, speaking at Fifth Third here, we didn't want to necessarily draw a hungry crowd with investing in some big upskilling effort that didn't necessarily have relevancy to that group's context of their day job. So we looked at the consumer side for sure, because that's where we were feeling a lot of the pain. We were spending a lot of time centralizing data changes. And the reason we were doing that is because the consumer side um, didn't have access to, didn't trust, or or didn't know how to make changes to their data themselves. So if we were um, invoking some kind of upstream source system change, all of that stuff had to be then bottlenecked into a centralized data group that was making those changes on behalf of the consumers to make it match one-to-one. Um, and that just breaks down because those data aggregators, those people in the middle, just don't know the context of that data like the uh, consumers do and may not be as familiar as the upstream um, changes are as the producers are. So just kind of caught in this middle land of like, well, we can't really be as effective as we want to be, but we think by federating some of these skills out, we can be really effective. Uh, so to your point earlier, um, I, I think that uh, any industry really, just we'll just, say, we'll just say corporate industry right now, has a tendency to scale things before they actually exist because we're sort of this like, tw- you know, once bitten, twice shy sort of mentality of like, well, we know we're, ne- we're going to need to scale. So we should start thinking about that at the first place. And I think it's really difficult to scale something that doesn't exist. So our first uh, attempt at this was like, hey, let's develop a bootcamp style learning initiative. Let's target it largely at data consumers or um, invite largely data consumers because they're going to be the hungriest for this change. They know that if they just knew how to do this or they just had access to it, they just could trust it a little bit more. They could probably do some of these changes on their own or they could probably control some of their their own destiny. Um, and then we just built a roadmap of things that we thought would be, you know, very transient skills that, you know, wouldn't be something very specific to like learn a Denodo platform or learn a, a data IQ platform or learn a platform that's really strategic and it's in its very specific nuanced use case of data. But it's more of like learn SQL, like learn a structured query language, learn data visualization. It could be Microsoft BI, it could be Tableau, it could be whatever is your visualization of choice. But as soon as you start to learn um, and be a little bit more uh, aware of table structures and RDBMS and just basic data concepts, that really accelerates people's own idea and thoughts and the context of their own work. Um, and so that was sort of the bet that we made at the beginning, and we're starting to see some of that payoff. When when you're having those conversations, to me, I mean, 
It's funny because like, what is a data product? You know, that, that whole conversation, everyone's like, what exactly is a data product? And it's like, it's different from everybody. Cause it's kind of, um, you know, it's not that what, what is a cow? It's like, okay, it's just that animal, but it's like, okay, but to a farmer, it's a source of milk or income or to, you know, whatever, mm. um, to other cows, it's their best friend. I don't know if you've ever read that research, but cows have best friends. So it's, <laughs> All that no, fun but I'm going stuff. to immediately after yeah. this. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so one question I've had for, or that's been forming in my mind more and more that you kind of really started to hit on is we are seeing that we need consumers to have better information flow. Where, where are you working with your producers to say our ownership extends to because a lot of this is how does this actually get used right and mm-hmm. so um people are afraid that they're gonna have to like marisa fish in her episode um really solidified this thinking for me of when we're sharing information are we sharing the information so someone can augment their own thinking or are we sharing it with the, you know, the kind of packaged insights, or are we sharing it with the packaged insights and the recommendation, the so what? And are you, are you, I guess where I think a lot of people are concerned on the producer side is that they have to share, they have to go all three, or that there's not a clear thing as to why are we exchanging this information, but that you at least want to see that so what, because it might inform what you actually share you might want to see what other people are are getting from the insights, but that your ownership doesn't have to extend that far. Have you have you started to kind of play around with that? It sounds like you're just ha- having a lot of empathy for both sides and making sure they yeah. they understand each other. So, are you working on that yet? Or certainly, yeah, definitely. We have a couple of POCs in this environment. We're we're definitely more uh, much more on the theoretical side of the. Uh, I, I would say of this problem right now. Um, some of what has actually been manifest in our group, though, is we're looking at things like trying to take a, a building block approach to data producers. So in terms of like just use customer as an example, like everyone can kind of relate to customer data. But so if we're trying to produce a published data set, that's a customer published data set. We know lots and lots of groups get tremendous value out of just a well curated customer published data set that they can leverage in terms of the API interface or whatever, however they want to exploit that. Um, or pull it into their own analytics suite, but they don't have to go find customer data now. It's readily available and published and versioned. Um, and then if you have a group that's further down that supply chain that needs to make some kind of meaningful trans- transformation to it, so it's not just customers anymore, maybe it's like a delinquent customer, right? Or it's a uh, whatever customer um, published data set that could end, end up becoming its own published data set again. And then, then you start to have this actual, the actual mesh start to be produced across whatever your physical data layer is. That's the idea right now is that we start with these building blocks set of published data sets or curated data sets that could then be transformed later on down the supply chain. And if they hit a certain threshold of data management or, or uh, data classification type, they could go boom, right back into curated published data set, or they could remain, like I said, like within that, um, consumer backlog of how they do their their end user reporting or their downstream reporting. So that's like some general thoughts on that. Um, I'm not sure if I totally answered your question there, but like I said, this is much more in the theory of practice for us at this point. Yeah, it's it's just something that that from a lot of what you were saying, it is a it's a difficult question because I think a lot of what you said is is that we kind of have to test it, and I think it will be different for each organization when we start to think about how do we like that it's we we keep trying to have these very very firm handoffs 
where it is my, you know, this is a hard wall and we pass it over the wall versus like, hey, you know, um, when you think about, um, I mean, maybe American football, you're, it's not that that if, if there's too crisp of a handoff versus you have the second of putting it in somebody's stomach before they grab the ball, right? That you have that kind of, I'm making sure that there is this um, proper handoff, that there mm. is something where we have that um, and that we, we limit the number of handoffs, but that we also understand, like, it's not that the, the quarterback doesn't have any idea and, and sorry to all international audiences, but <laughs> the quarterback knows where the running back is going to go. Right. So it's not that they've got any, they have lack complete context. They can, they can work with them to make that a more effective play. And I think that's, um, I'm searching for a better analogy. That's more universal, but I, I think a lot of what you're, you're talking about is, as well, having kind of empathy for yourself as an organization in that you don't have to get it right, right at the, off the bat, mm. right? That, that you're, you're focusing on learning, you're focusing on delivering value, because if we're not delivering value, if all we're doing is learning, that's not, you know, that we're not going to get the funding for that for very long. Yeah. But a lot of what you're talking about is that fast feedback loop, that iteration, that we're testing things out and seeing, and we're not, we're telling people not to lock in, right? Like yep. this isn't the way it's going to work. This is the way it might work if it works. Right? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. We're, this is like the opposite of Minesweeper for us. Like we're actually looking for those holes in the Swiss cheese to fall through, right? Or those fumbles, if we're going to use that one. Although I, my, my, I'll be honest, my awareness of football is super limited. So that's probably, <laughs> I'm with your international audience on that one, but uh, so I think that the uh, the what we're trying to do is tip over a lot. Like we, it's it's yeah, we're never it's never going to be pixel perfect. That's not how many good ideas start. So we're trying to you know in this case you know perfect is obviously the enemy of good when we're trying to in incorporate change like data mesh um, or anything in that in that atmosphere. And so yeah, I can give you an example even too in, in this boot camp that I'm talking about. Um, we learned really quickly that the one of the instructors was using SAS as a SQL editor, and we're like, wow. We, and then, but some of the participants were like, I could actually use a lot of what is in SAS for my current context. And we're like, hey, why not teach that then? So, like, right on the spot, we brought in our product champion. We picked up on um, a couple of different threads that people had in their own use cases, and then just introduced a new easy, like, relatively. I mean, SAS can be super complicated depending on your use case for it, but um, something that is that's low hanging for people to leverage to make their current context of what they're doing better. And like I said, get, uh, address the ultimate goal of uh, getting out of Excel. So I'll keep beating that drum as much as I can. Although I, I am also a fan of Excel, I should say that probably as well. But yeah, I'm, I'm a huge fan. I, I I still love Excel, but that's because the when I'm dealing with data, it's generally small enough, and it's generally I'm poking at it to see what falls out. And yeah. then I, I go back and say, okay, here is the thing. Let's let's institutionalize that. Let's you know codify the mm -hmm. actual transformations if we want this. But here's the interesting incremental insight. But so much of my stuff is kind of one-off, point by point driven, right? Like it's this podcast. I'm not having uh, ten thousand people on the podcast, right? It's going yeah, out yeah, and, right. people and, and doing that. So, um, but I, I really liked what you just mentioned there which I think is, is part of what we're talking about here is that active listening, right? It's not that your job is to create the data product and hand it off. Your job is to 
create the context in such a way or to, to, you know, as a data producer, your job is to share the context of what's happening in such a way that others can, can leverage it. And I think, again, that it just keeps coming back to this, how do we do high context exchange? And like, when you are doing these upskilling, like, where are you finding that people are really, really bought in? Like, how are you selling it to them that this isn't, we're changing the way everything is done and it's it's kind of put up or shut up versus like, you have the knowledge, we want to better, you know, kind of push you, put you out there, make you more effective. Like, how have you found that? And, and have you found that there is people pushing back or if they are, you, you're not, it's kind of quiet pushback or like, how, mm, how are you feeling uh, that, that kind of going forward? Yeah, the pushback is, uh, the pushback has generally been like, oh, I, I'm not sure if, you know, my supervisor will let me take that much time away from my day job to go learn. Like that's the, and that, that's pretty like, I would say commonplace again, if we're talking about sort of corporate, uh, corporate industry here again. Um, and I love, there's a, there is an, an influential figure in the agile world. His name's Alan Holub, and he has this beautiful quote, um, from some time ago. I can't remember what one it was. I think it was in a presentation he gave that was called the death of agile. And, uh, the quote he used was, um, training a team for two weeks, slows that team down for two weeks, but then not training that team for two weeks, slows them down forever. And so I've always been a huge uh, investor of that way of thinking. And so whenever I hear pushback around like, oh, so-and-so, does a, I like light up. I'm like, oh, I got all these reasons why. And here's this amazing organizational psychology spin on why you should do this stuff. And so the pushback has largely been just scheduling and bandwidth and capacity, which is a real constraint, but also a very solvable constraint from my perspective. Um, the willingness has been off the charts. I was actually fairly nervous. Like we got to this point of analysis where we're like, hey, people just generally seem frustrated. There isn't anyone that seems like lost or like I wouldn't know how to incorporate some of these skills or I wouldn't, I don't know how to solve these problems. It's like people generally see the solution to the problems of like, I know I need to learn a skill or I know these these platforms are falling over for me or I know that change is happening upstream and I don't know how to incorporate it downstream. Um, but they're not like opposed to the idea of learning a new skill. Uh, and so we, we did intentionally steer any kind of conversation away from ownership because I feel like that, again, unnecessarily might cloudy things. Like it might be like, uh, it, when you say ownership in the context of a matrix organization, there can be all kinds of things like, well, audit trail and, you know, delegation and corporate responsibility and stewardship and all those things come into play as forces. And if you can anchor away or steer away from those things and anchor to just someone's ability to learn a new skill, a lot more people kind of fall in line or are um, appreciative or encouraged by that way of uh, communication than like, a, hey, you need to do this because compulsory kind of thing. So really, at the outset, we just look for commitment over um, compulsion. And we, and we really want people to be bought in and, and understanding. So from that perspective, I will admit, we probably with the first few cohorts, we've stacked the deck a little bit because we've looked for people or personas. There's probably what I would say, maybe uh, four or five dozen or so in this mix now, these federated data engineers, as I'll call them. Um, I won't say data citizen or data, you know, uh, citizen data engineer, data scientist, for sure. But uh, so what we found is that, um, yes, to a person, they've all been able to apply the skills so far. I think the, the feedback has been a little bit, maybe the subject matter is out of place. Like we taught SAS right away, but then SQL didn't come till much later. So there was a little bit of like juxtaposition there. Um, so there's some things to iron out. But again, like we're looking for those things of like, what doesn't make sense? We're all data engineers. So all of this stuff makes sense to us. But like, where do these areas not line up? Um, and so uh, we've just found like we we drew a, a huge crowd initially. We had to turn some people away or or point them to virtual training, which is not the best way to learn for sure. But uh, it was a, at least something to offer versus a, the whole classroom experience. 
Um, but once we were able to get over the the hurdles of you know the the where is the funding come from and how do I get time away and you know where is it going to be located in the logistics of all that stuff. I mean, man, people, we're just turning and burning on this one, Scott, to be honest with you. Like, it's just been amazing to see people sort of unlock. Like, I look for those moments in my career now of like, when do I see change happen in a person? Like, when can I see a team of people or an individual, like, you know, realize something or become aware of something that they weren't aware of before or, you know, uh, unlock something in their context that nobody else would have been able to except for them, given this opportunity. And there's been so many of those so far, um, which has been one, really encouraging. And then two, just validating to, to the idea that, um, people are uh, desire to change. They want to change, but it has to be the right kind of change. And it has to be not the, you know, like I said, like the the quarterly blast of communication type of change. It has to be the, the hey, we're here. We're building credibility with you. We want to see these things successful. And ultimately, we want to solve problems that make your job easier. Um, and, and people are, are very responsive to that, I would say. Yeah, I've been doing, you know, some of my mesh musings, which I've kind of told people I really don't enjoy doing mesh musings because it's just me. It feels very weird because it's just me talking. But um, part of what you were saying there is is about the the buy in. And I think a little bit of what was underneath there is one thing that that I said and, and some people, again, get frustrated by it. But I'm like, prepare to repeat yourself and then repeat yourself again right? Mm-hmm. You're, you're talking about that quarterly thing. It's an email, right? Like it did this email go out? Okay. This email went out. Boom, boom. I'm done. I don't have mm-hmm. to, to communicate anymore. And it's like, that's not how you actually work with humans. Humans don't, you know, there are very, very few people who, once they hear the, the thing the first time, you know, that I did some uh, interviews with uh, Jamak. We're, we're cutting that up into some uh, smaller episodes that are about a, a specific thing. And each time I listen through, I learn something new or I take a new focus and a new perspective. And so, you know, it, it's not that she has to repeat it over and over at me, but that, you know, I'm listening through and I'm like, oh, here's a nuance, here's a nuance, here's another. And so having the empathy around that, I think. And, and you talked a little bit about this earlier as well, that People have a willingness to change, but we have to manage the cognitive load. Hmm. Are you finding that with this boot camp that people have enough cognitive load capability? Because you know, you're know, you saying, I don't know if my manager will give me the time, but hmm. it's not just the hours in the day. It's also the kind of free brain space, <laughs> right, to be yeah. able to do this. So how are you, how are you working with managers to to let them understand that to again show them that hey this might slow your person down for the five weeks or whatever of the boot camp but that you are going to see the benefits over the next x amount of time yeah yeah that's great that's a great question uh i've always been probably really terrible at uh developing roi on stuff so take take all of what i'm about to say with a grain of salt because that's not my forte uh but i would say that like i i like the idea of solving really interesting problems. Most people, when you ask them, like, hey, what are you frustrated by? What are you struggling with? I, I was at a branch visit this morning and like people, like that's a very easy question for people to answer. Like, hey, what sucks? Like people will give you tons of things that, that aren't going well. And usually there's a lot of uh, really good, valuable insight in trying to dig deeper in some of those things, especially if you're not biased by like, well, I know that sucks, but here's all the reasons why and there's nothing we can do about it. But if you go into it, you know, like I said, willing to synthesize some of those problems into real use cases, 
um, it becomes to me very easy to tell you why you're going to benefit from this thing, right? Like everyone will benefit from SQL. We know that. But also like when we're talking about, you know, line of business reporting teams that, you know, can't get a real time data feed or they're operating on, um, you know, analytical data that's potentially two weeks old, like that is not effective enough to be you know relevant with the pace of disruption that we're seeing. And so everyone's familiar with that kind of pain and feel it every day. And we can, if we can short circuit that, um, generally we get fairly uh, responsive um, participants to that. I would say that the cognitive load is a real thing. Uh, I think that we're probably testing the boundaries of it. I don't expect that everyone retains everything they learn inside of the five weeks that we're talking about in terms of the total duration. Uh, but we're trying to build in as much intentional, like I said, like, so you have about, you know, half of your week is spent in the classroom and the balance of that week is not spent back at the bank in this situation, the bank, uh, you know, doing your day job. It's really synthesizing that into the use cases that we identified, you know, pre- bootcamp. And so you take those real use cases, they kind of follow you throughout. And then we have milestones that are like, hey, after week three, you know, you should be able to um, document uh, your domain in a data catalog. And if it doesn't already exist, then if it does exist, you should be able to contribute to it in some way or write an article against it or whatever, or um, revise a contract, etc. And uh, so we have those milestones built in that help kind of anchor people toward like, I know I'm going to need to use all these things for a culmination of some really sort of cross-functional event like document, you know, your domain in uh, the, the, our data catalog. Second milestone is like, hey, create a published data set or contribute to it. And so these are real, very real things that people can start to iterate to, as well as the own use case that they have in their group. And so what I found with developing a concrete use case with a problem statement and put even potential solutions at the beginning, at the beginning um, is that it veers people away or it steers people away from this idea that they need to retain everything. They start to really figure out I need these things to get to, to fix the context that I'm trying to work in, to fix the use case or the problem that I was having with data prior to uh, boot camp. And so if we can get people to steer that way, they start to maybe ignore the things or, or they deprioritize the things that are interesting, but maybe not relevant. Um, and that has been effective. But, you know, this is there's a lot of like assumptions built into this working well, which is like, hey, this balance of days that this class is spending back at. Um, the premises of the bank are not spent doing their day job because that would it's con that's too much context switching. That's negative context switching instead of like they can be focused on elements of their job that are aided by the skills that they're now learning, which is much more of what we've seen. You know, at the same time, we have these background, you know, structures. Uh, we have this whole federated data engineering Microsoft Teams channel that people can contribute questions to and a compendium of, of information and an FAQs. It's ever growing about our platforms and how to get access to things. And it, it's amazing to me, actually, that the things we struggle with most are probably not, you know, the synthesis of SQL into, you know, whatever people's jobs are. It's really more of like, how do I get access to data? Like that becomes a really big stumbling block for us. And so that's some of that Swiss cheese mentality that we're trying to run into and create roles that are generalized and relevant enough for people that get them kind of past that, you know, 50% of the problem we're experiencing. So um, I guess the, the, I'll, I'll sum that up because I know I rambled a little bit. I would say that the cognitive load is a real thing. We're trying to stay as close as we can to it understanding people aren't going to retain everything um, and not certainly not trying to survey or quiz people all the time because that's a, that's even a different kind of load that people have, right? The feedback load, I'll call it. Uh, but it's really trying to present as much like of that thing that I can feel every day when I'm in my job and how these skills will, uh, you know, align with making that easier, helping solve that. And we're doing that with coaching and, you know, real-time support from our, our team as well, my team as well. Um, so all of that. Okay. Yeah, well, and it, it feels like... Um... So one thing that you said in there is uh, the 
not quizzing people and the concrete use case. And I think like when you, if you follow any software developers or senior software dev- devs on on Twitter or anything like that, every week you'll see people saying, hey, here's the real secret of being a senior software developer. I Google things all the time. I have to yeah. search for these things because a lot of what you're teaching them to do is to apply the knowledge instead of how to, okay, what's the difference between a, a join and a left join? Isn't it the same thing or, you know, an inner join or an outer join or, a you know, all mm. of those things. It's like, what are you trying to do? Let's focus on what you're trying to do. And then you can go and you can, you can figure out the specifics. You can search for the act, actual specifics and then, you know, kind of test it and make sure, okay, did, did this do what I thought it was going to do? But you don't have to memorize every statement in SQL. You don't have to, to know, you don't have to memorize all the variables for all of your, um, the stuff that your your domain uses in your, your stuff, right? Like right. you don't have to memorize the table names. You you memorize how, or you you know figure out how to look up the column names. And so it's like, okay, I don't have to memorize that this is, and I can. So I think exactly what you're talking about, and, and the the quizzing people, I think, also puts a, a certain pressure on a lot of people that makes it like is this pass or fail versus we want you to succeed, work with us to help you succeed. And you might not get perfect at this, but you, and you might, you know, always be terrible at SQL, but you might know exactly what you want to search. And then you just partner with somebody that's going to, that's going to help you out a little bit, but that you're like, okay, I know I want to do this and this and this, and it helps you at least get into the dialogue as you get comfortable with that. I think a lot of what you're talking about is, Something that I, I thought that um, uh, there was a thing in, in chemistry, which there's not, called the transitive state. Um, and so I started trying to look for that for an analogy. And it's like, no, I'm thinking of like the transitive property of in mathematics or whatever. But um, that when we're doing data mesh and every domain, we're constantly always in somewhat of a state of transition. If you're not, if you're static, then you probably shouldn't have been doing data mesh because you didn't have enough challenges. You didn't need the agility to be <laughs> doing yeah. data mesh. But, um, you know, and there's stuff where it's it's good enough for now and stuff. I don't want to say everything needs to be changing every day and all that stuff. But that we have to understand what got us here won't get us there. But we also don't have to be there today. That mm. we can work towards there. We have, you don't, you don't go in with the plans for a building and it's built that day. You build it up over time. You build up the thing, you know, you look at companies, they don't, they aren't built in a day. You know, they can somewhat be destroyed in a day, but they aren't built in a day. You build it up over time, like that we have this empathy towards people of saying, we're going to get you to where you're going to be more effective. This is going to be better for us. This is going to be better for us. That's why we're investing in you. But it's going to be better for you whether you're here or whether you're somewhere else. But like, let's work together to make you more effective at your job. And so then you can do more amazing things and you can unlock value and you can grow and that we're not we're not just trying to replace you with the, the data. 
we're trying to unlock it for you. And, and I think mm. that's, that's coming through in all, in all of the little things. It's not that you said that exactly, but it's like every little thing that every way that you're talking about approaching it is talking about that of working with people to, to understand that. And, and, you know, we talked uh, in the pre-call about you can't hire your way to data mesh. Like, how are you, when you're going into these domains and you're saying things are changing, we need to be better. Are, is there the fear reaction or is there more of the, yeah, let's partner and let's, let's move forward on this. Mm, yeah. Yeah. No, that's a, there's so many things I want to say, right. Because I, I do agree <laughs> with like, what you were just saying is totally true. There's all these, these, like, we're talking a lot about technical skills people need to do things well in data mesh. And there's actually like, there's so much more value in just being curious, having a lot of personal agency, developing second order thinking and cause and effect. Like all of those things will help you be exceptional at whatever your job is, data or otherwise, right? Just find and replace that for anything that you're working on, um, for sure. The the second piece is, yeah, I, I actually, um, it's funny, this didn't occur to me until you said that. I don't want to ask that question. Like, I don't want to tell people what's changing and how they need to adapt. I actually want them to, I, I endeavor for them to self-realize that like, oh, things are terrible or they could be better or I'm not being as efficient as I could be. And once you get that realization, it's money day because you can just totally you can cash in on people feeling that way in any way you want to in terms of like leveraging their ability to engage now because I've understood I've, I've developed credibility with you. And so much of the barrier or resistance to change for people boils down to really three central categories, which I think is um, logic, credibility and emotion. And I think the first one that's most important with the kind of change we're talking about is emotion, for sure. Like we're talking about. Uh, potentially ownership changing or jobs, you know, being different or data engineers moving to software generalists or whatever. Um, so you have to be aw- at least aware of and able to navigate and manage, uh, you know, where people might be in, in emotion and their emotions, which is definitely being empathetic and developing social skills. You also have to be credible. And that's where a lot of like what we're talking about, that high context data exchange of people talking to each other, right? And having conversations and understanding use cases and being like, man, I, I get it now, right? Like walk me through, show me how you do this. Um, getting that to that level of credibility is huge in terms of just developing a, a partnership. And the last thing is logic. You just have to show that like, yes, this is a better way to do it. And that's usually where people start. They want to start with a logic piece of like, how how dare you p- use pivot tables to drive this operational process in bankruptcy? Like what, what's wrong with you? you? You must use this different suite of tools that will abstract all of this for you and therefore be much better. And that's like definitely not going to you know, influence people. They're just going to tell you to, to bug off and go do their thing the way they've always been doing it. And so if you can really kind of develop those first two um, you can you can use logic to your advantage in that case and win the day. But um, I'm trying to get, I guess, people to sort of self-assess that, wow, we, we do need to change or we want to change more than anything. Not we do. We, we need to, but we want to. Um, and then I, we're there to help with a, a lot of different you know pathways or, or bodies of knowledge um, that we can we can leverage. I mean, I, I do agree that no one should ever use pivot tables ever, but that's just because <laughs> yeah. they silently break. And I've, I've, I've silently broken them way too many times and not, not uh, realized it. So I, I've been burned a few times on that. But, um, but yeah, I, I think one question I would, I would ask then is, let's say everybody's, somebody's bought into what you're, what you're selling here, right? You're selling that we need to, to have empathy. We need to train our people. We need to work with them to, to get them to, to want this and do this. How, how would you recommend somebody sells that to management, right? Mm-hmm. How would you recommend that, that if somebody is bought in, that they drive the ability to get funding for this? And yes, everything's, you know, <laughs> specific to your own circumstances. I'm not asking for the copy paste, but like, 
maybe a little bit about your story about doing this or mm-hmm. um, some things that where you think that there's likely to be pushback and what what you can do to bring some, again, you're not trying to hit them with the logic stick and be like, this is why you should do this versus like the credibility and playing to their emotion aspect. I, I like that kind of those, those three aspects of, of working with people, but like, hmm. what have you, what would you tell somebody if they said, I, I want to do this, but like, how do I get approval to actually start this data literacy program? Yeah, I would. Uh, yeah, that's great. I think that this is where knowing the incentives of your audience is really key because like the the incentives of my management team, uh, it, they're definitely more of the um, employee engagement and more of the employee upskilling and collaboration and investment and training. And so for me, that that was not a huge barrier to crest. It was really just finding the right opportunity, developing the skill set, creating some thought around like what would be the right way to sort of graduate people through a, a process like this. Uh, I would say that the to, to me, I would think that you would want to get to a place of knowing what the incentives are. And so if you can identify that the incentives are like, yes, we want to encourage training or we know there's going to be change and we don't know how to get there. And we're facing this decision of like, do we do staff hog and professional services to try to fill that gap? Or do we look at training our own team? Like that's the right time to sort of um, strike the flint, I guess. Uh, so my own personal story, I guess, was we the, we we partner, we as in Fifth Third, uh, partner with an amazing university, University of Cincinnati, which is right in downtown Cincinnati, which is the head, where the headquarters of Fifth Third is. So we play in the same sort of corporate backyard or geographically the same backyard. And um, so we do all kinds of partnerships with them around you know recruiting and, and staffing and interesting problem case identification and whatnot. And they have this sort of premier innovation center and, uh, and premier professional development center. And so we've been working a lot on trying to find the right first sort of end-to-end program that we could develop. I happen to um, have worked on a couple of different sort of, I'm maybe I'm going to sound like a one-trick pony, but this is just because of my, my strong belief in employee training, not because I've only done one thing in my career successfully, but uh, I've done boot camps in the past and I found them to be a really exceptional way if you can get the funding to get people to a place of uh, no change to change and um, a very direct way to manifest that rather like what, what more direct way is there than sitting in a classroom training skills to people that are willing to change and, and, and uh, receptive to that. And so it was uh, finding the right use case. It was writing a compelling enough business case. So I, I would again, I would argue or I would I would one up your uh, perspective on, on Google things. I Google things every day that I don't know how to do or looking for examples of things I can iterate from um, or borrow holistically. And so trying to find you know, different anchors to there's all like, you know, any kind of industry research, uh, Gardner, ThoughtWorks, et cetera, they all come up with different interesting ways to engage uh, a workforce and upskilling. So there's lots of sort of playbooks you can borrow from that give you an ignition guide even to how to do it. But um, I would say you want to d- definitely identify the problem you're trying to solve, which is so cliche, but it, but it is so true in terms of like really getting a, a thorough a thoroughly good, understood and consumable problem statement will will make it so much easier for other people to get on board and help understand where you're going um, and how to support. And then once you have that, it's just trying to find the right ways that the solution of a boot camp will help address that or, or employee re- reskilling. It doesn't necessarily have to be a boot camp, um, depending on the context that we're talking about. Yeah, exactly what you talked about there as well with the um, the business case. Because I think one thing that a lot of people overlook, especially data people, is um, you know, it's it's funny how often you see, you know, data influencers or whatever, and, and it's come up on this podcast so much of how much we have to remind ourselves because people in data tend to love technology. You 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 haven't been uh, you know, just talking tech. I'm sure you do love tech if if you're, you know, kind of leading uh, data engineering and stuff, but 
that tying the data strategy to the business strategy or actually starting from the business strategy and creating your data strategy off of your business strategy and then creating your technology strategy off of your data strategy, which is again tied to your business strategy. So hmm. much of this is that business case, right? It's going to to somebody and if you're trying to get funding from the CFO, it's, hey, we recognize here's a problem and here is why it's a problem for the business. Not just because I say it's a problem, not just because I say that, but like you're you're going in and you're you're, I mean, it's kind of what a lot of people have said in, in Data Mesh of communicating in their language. You're going to them and saying, I understand that I don't just get to do this, but you know, okay, let's look at our employee retention. If our employee retention is falling, is it because we're not investing enough in our employees? That doesn't mean just going and and doing more pizza parties or whatever that that a lot of people try and do, or, or let's redecorate the office versus let's invest in our people, show them we care about them. You know, uh, Richard Branson's uh, quote of, of invest in your people. So, you know, everybody wants them and they're, they're completely, uh, everybody wants them to, to come to their companies, but they have no desire to leave, treat them in a Mm -hmm. way where they have, they don't want to go anywhere else. They can go in. I think it's train, invest in your people so they can go anywhere and then treat them so they don't want to go anywhere right, else. Right. And so like a lot of what you're saying here is, is like show that there is an actual business problem around this, right? This isn't just, we should be data-driven because we should be data-driven. It's like, okay, like go and find that use case where somebody says, we we don't get our data for two weeks or we can't trust our data. And here's a decision we made and it was wrong because our data wasn't great. Or I'm spending, you know, X amount of my time ensuring that this data is correct. And you know what? 95% of the time it is, 5% of it the time it isn't. So I have to spend all of that time to make sure that it isn't in that 5% where it's not versus if I could just check some metrics that tell me that it is, then I get to, to leverage this thing so much more. It's, it's going and proving that there's a business challenge here. Because I think, and, and why I'm hammering on this is, I think we all know that we need to invest in our people and we need to invest in data literacy if we want to be data-driven. But it's kind of always, well, why can't we just go hire it, right? Like, why do we have to stop down? But you talked about that business case of, well, do do I need to go hire, you know, 300 data engineers? Can you find that many? Can you afford that many? Like versus, Hey, we're gonna, we're gonna have a quarter where things aren't going to be as great, but it's going to pay off over the next four quarters. You know, it's going to pay off in quarter one. And then we're just reaping in pure profit from this in all the future subsequent quarters. So that's right. I think so much of what you're talking about is just talking to people like they're people and just saying, what can we do to partner together? Right. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just kind of the thing that's been, so, sorry to be talking so much here, but it's like, so much of what you're you're saying throughout the whole conversation is just not just have empathy, but like go in and extract the information and then synthesize it back to them, play it back to them, and then partner with them to say, and here's how I think we could have a solution. Does this actually hit? Instead of I'm just going to pitch you. It's like, hey, 
let's work together. Let's iterate on this together. Let's 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 play around with this together and yeah. take in the feedback and say, hey, we found out that doing the SaaS up front, but the SQL later, that's that just didn't work very well. Like we're just gonna move it around, we're gonna do this, and and here's the output, here's the output, here's the output. So is that is that kind of what you're you're seeing is working really yeah. well for you or? Yeah, definitely. I, I I interpret that as like we want to play catch with people. Like we want to throw the ball and then have it thrown back to us and understand like how do we make this better? How do we get more accurate? How do we get more precise? We're not trying to blaze you know 100 mile an hour pitches down to a backstop where there's no one receiving it or telling us giving us feedback on it. You know, and so uh, so we're trying to incorporate as much of that as we can. And um, I just think with the the pace of change in general, you know, COVID, technology, et cetera, whatever we're talking about displacing so many traditional ways of problem solving that there isn't any other way I think that can be effective. Like you have to, um, it is as simple as you said, but also, you know, uh, difficult to do sometimes, right. To cut through and make it simple and be like, what's the problem. And then, okay, we can probably solve that and not get into the area of like, well, where does this go in the backlog and how do we stack and rack this and, and, and rank it against all the other strategic priorities and et cetera. That's where you start to lose people because it becomes less real, right. It becomes more abstract and, um, difficult for people to anchor to for sure. Well, yeah, and, and get the buy-in a little bit and say, okay, we're going to figure out how to do this. And then then you can start to get into the logistics, but not that you have to have everything solved up front. That's the yeah. thing that a lot of people have with their data mesh journey. We have to solve it yeah, all up yeah. front. Yeah, we we had a we made a beautiful uh, data mesh strategy or, or data uh, modern data strategy about a year and a half ago, and you sat around sniffing our own farts, I think, for a while, and we're like, this is great. People are going to really align to it. And it's going to be amazing. And then we had uh, some new peers join our staff, and so Shauna Maher, you'll you'll appreciate me saying this, hopefully, to where they were like, "What well, this doesn't?" They joined from a, a consumer line of business, so they're like, "This doesn't really make a lot of sense." Like, it's hard for people to like, I don't know what this means. Like, self service means totally different things depending on the on the business that you're in. And um, I saw a recent revision of it, and I was blown away. I was like, "Wow, it's so." so different and yet so central to what we were trying to get across but now it makes sense now we've we've run it through the translation matrix and we've been able to spit it out in a way that can actually be consumable from you know a line of business that we're looking to try to encourage or adopt that change and so kind of trying to develop a one-size-fits-all that goes to the absolute maximum of value prop for data mesh is gonna appeal to like the one percentile of people that are interested in thinking that way, but you're going to lose a huge part of the participants you're trying to go after. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, um, and, and we keep as well, I think a lot of what you're talking about is actual human to human contact. And we mm. keep trying to iterate away. We keep trying to find technical solutions to communication challenges. And, and we want technical solutions that enable better human to human context exchange mm. instead of that the, the robots are going to take care of it. Like, you know, I keep seeing this with around data contracts and the conversation there. And so much of it is like, we have to give producers the ability to understand when they're breaking their sharing agreement and that there is a, commu- there is a conversation that is, is created because it might be that they have to break their, their sharing agreement. And then we talk about versioning and things like that. But a lot of times they just don't know. And so mm. then all of a sudden you say, you now own this, but you have no ability to check if what you're going to do is going to break people's downstream consumption or you don't know what's actually happening with your data after it's. And then, you know, especially in banking, people get really concerned about, do we share all of our data so anybody can get access at any point? It's like, no, because there's really non-compliant use, but there's also very, very high value compliant use. And we just have to know 
what are you going to use it for? Like, let's register that. If you use it in a way that's not good, that's on you. Like, we have to have that agreement that you're now saying contractually, this is how you're going to do it. And so, yeah, I I think so much of what you're saying is, it's funny that it, it boils down to just like, have empathy, have conversations, work with people, work to understand them. But it is so much about that nitty gritty. Exactly. You, you talked about all these, these things that you're doing and the proof points and that you've, you've iterated on them. And that's, that's where I think the, the value in these types of conversations are, is that it's not just here's the, the abstract. You made it concrete for people, mm. right? Like yeah. that's where I think the, these are the, to me, incredibly helpful because it's, it, it shows people like how, where you iterated, how you, how you made changes and stuff. So mm. very, I, I, I learned a lot from this. I'm, I'm very excited to kind of absorb it and, and I'm sure I'll, I'll come back to you with more questions later, but um so we, we did cover a whole heck of a lot of things throughout this. Uh, is there anything we didn't cover that you wanted to, or any way you'd kind of want to sum up the conversation in general? Yeah, I would say, uh, no, I, I love where this went as well. So thank you. I, I definitely reciprocate that. Um, yeah, I, I think we're, from my perspective, I feel like uh, we're definitely pushing the boundaries of implementing a data mesh and trying to figure out where the, like I said, those holes in the Swiss cheese are. So um, I the one thing I'll say is the where I feel like the kind of thing that we're talking about with employee reskilling and, and organizational change management on the data consumer side primarily, um, but a lot on the producer side as well, you do need energy input into the system a little bit upfront. You do need to have people, a team that's dedicated to picking things up when they fall over because the we have this really weird phenomenon that occurs in uh, financial industry where uh, it seems to me that the pace of change or an organiz- organizational change will end when a PowerPoint is given or when a meeting is had or when uh, you know, whatever, some some milestone like that is met, but like no change has actually occurred. So you have to be kind of willing to, to uh, pardon the pun right now, but weather the storm of those that kind of change fatigue where things are gonna fall over and it does come down to an individual potentially pushing it forward and being like, you know what, we gotta pick this back up. Let's remind people, let's re-engage, let's uh, be the one that's annoying people about, hey, this is coming up. Who do you have that you wanna be involved? Or kind of hitting that bell over and over again. And that's where we see time and time again, that personal agency, that ability to stay curious, um, that stuff pays off big time when you're trying to actually influence and uh, and, and sort of you know work through um, change, even when you don't have potentially a lot of organizational authority, like my title gives me some some of that off the bat. But if you're in a situation where you don't have that, uh, you can be very energetic about the change and you can usually get enough people on board with you to keep it keep it moving forward. So I would say, um, yeah, and then I would just say that for us, I, I, the key to unlocking data mesh has certainly been um, upskilling. So I would just hit that that drum again. Um, and then be aware, here's my cautionary tale, be aware of downstream reporting. You know, if you're in an area where you have uh, lots of change that you're incur- incurring or lots of disruption that's occurring, definitely make sure you're engaging those data consumers early and often because, um, you know, I'm sure, Scott, you've got a, a few of these where you've had one, what seems to be minor systemic change occur in a new source system or a, a replatforming initiative or even just an upgrade that has major consequences downstream that can kind of hold everything up. So. Um, if you have a group of downstream consumers, and if I say that, there's probably a group that may come to mind, definitely make sure you're engaging them and you can be aware of, uh, they're going to be a really good, interesting, valuable group. Because if you can, generally speaking, if you can get 
uh, your downstream reporting group to come along with your change initiative. That's kind of like that the the, the world will follow. I like to think so. Well, and, and that was kind of the conversation the conversation question earlier about like how far do we go? There's ownership, but then there's also knowledge and information, and that and and we need that in the platform as well, so that mm. producers can actually know who this might impact and have that conversation. So for sure. Um, so I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people that would love to follow up with you on, on kind of everything we talked about here. Hmm. Where, where's the best place? What, what would you like them following up if on anything specific? Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah. Perfect. So LinkedIn is probably the best way. I'm one of those people that I don't have much social media. You can find my wife on Facebook, but she'd probably get annoyed with data questions. So definitely don't do that, but you can find me on LinkedIn for sure. Um, I'm generally pretty responsive on there unless you're uh, a recruiter or something Then I'm generally not responsive, but um, yeah, that, that's definitely the place to be. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to answer questions. I love clearly, hopefully some of the passions coming through. I love talking about uh, people, leadership, change, um, data for sure. Anything in that realm. I'm, I'm happy to uh, be participant too. Yeah. Awesome. Well, again, thank you so much, Alex, for your time today. And thank you as well, everyone out there for listening. Cool. Thanks, Scott. I'd again like to thank my guest today, Alex Bross, who's the VP of Data Engineering at Fifth Third Bank. You can find a link to his LinkedIn in the show notes as per usual. Thank you. Hopefully that interview episode was really useful for you. Please do consider getting in touch with guests from the show, from these episodes. Most have said they'd really love people to reach out to them. And please, as well, if you've got a minute, rate and review the podcast somewhere. It really is honestly super helpful for other people looking into kind of data podcasts to kind of get this in front of them. Data Mesh Radio is again provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It's produced and hosted by me, Scott Herleman. In April of 2023, I left Data Stacks, who were wonderful in getting the Data Mesh community stuff started. So give them a shout for streaming and real-time AI needs. But I left to start my own industry analyst kind of information as a service firm. Our offerings are affordable and you can do them on a one-off or a month-to-month basis. You know, read kind of, throw it on the credit card. Don't worry about like going through purchasing and things like that. The services include lots of practitioner roundtables, you know, one-on-one data mesh kind of planning or feedback sessions and tailored introductions to other data mesh practitioners that are focused around your topics of interest. You know, what, what are you actually running into challenges with? We also have some free programs around introductions and roundtables that people can kind of check out as well. Check the show notes or just go to datameshunderstanding.com for more info or helpful resources. As always, if you have suggestions for guests or topics, please do get in touch as well. And have a wonderful rest of your day. Now let's hear that funky outro music.